A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Andor, uh, I, I mean Mandalorian podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. God damn it, you took my joke, and I'm John. <laughs> and this is our coverage of the Disney Plus original series, The Andorlorian, Season 3, Episode 3. In this podcast, we'll be discussing a scene-by-scene breakdown for Chapter 19, The Convert, followed by listener feedback. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about the rest of our crazy schedule for March. So, what do you guys think about this show so far? Write in and let us know. You can send us feedback in two ways. Email us at starwarsatthelorehounds.com or head over to our website and either use the contact form or leave a voicemail, which we'll play on the next episode. If you want to talk Star Wars with us sooner, join us in our Discord server. Link in the show notes below. A quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and want to support us directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the lorehounds. For just three bucks a month, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, early access, bloopers, and more. Of course, you can get all of our ad-supported podcasts on our main feed by searching for the lorehounds on your podcast application of choice or using the cool little subscription tool over at thelorehounds.com. Lastly, we'd like to ask if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us move up in the rankings. It helps us stand out above other podcasts, and it helps us gain more listeners, which helps us make more podcasts. We've been getting some nice reviews on there. So if you left a review, thank you very much. It's, um, I don't know, gives us a little spring in our step when we see, when we read those. So, um, John, episode three, season three, what did you think? I am so goddamn hyped for this show. Oh, wow. It's dropping the GD bomb. We're rated explicit, so I don't care. We are, so it's okay. I'm going to send you a link now to demonstrate 
how I feel about this episode. The Dropbox thing. Oh, is this another play thing? I don't know. Uh-oh, I've got another audio, mystery audio file from John. Here we go. I am playing now. And the Mando and Grogu in the silver ship. Bo-Katan <laughs> wearing a gun on her hip. When you're coming home, Boa don't know when. She'll wear a helmet then. Gonna be a convert then. You are giving Weird Al a run for his money, my friend. That is awesome. That is so inspired. I love it. And I love the choice of song, too. It's perfect. Oh, that is so good. I'm going to have to listen to it again. But later. Well, check out the Patreon uh, Lore Fiend and Lore Master link for the theme music downloads. I'll throw this in there just like I threw the Bo-Katan song in there. Wow. John, uh, you are hyped for the show. I am impressed, I am hyped. Sir. That is some uh, mystical, magical, cr- musical crafting there. Crafty man. <laughs> Very it's cool. The, uh, it's the living music of Mandalore. <laughs> you were inspired. Are you going to ride the Mythosaur? I don't know. I thought about working the Mythosaur into the song. I couldn't make it work with the rhyming. Yeah, it's a tough one. Mythosaur. Mm. Maybe next Mythos. time. Yeah. Uh, so that is a good clue to how you're feeling about the show. Do you want to use some uh, word words to uh, tell us how you are feeling? No. That's it. That's going to stand on the song. I love it. All right. How did you feel, David? Definitely Andor vibes. Uh, I'm looking for the connectivity with the Bad Batch. I haven't seen this week's Bad Batch episode yet, but I feel like they're, they're setting something up. They're triangulating us here. Um, and remember at the end of Andor, we talked about how everyone who is actively or potentially working on a Star Wars script, they should just tear up their scripts right then and there and go and watch Andor season, the entire season several times over and really take a page out of Tony Gilroy's book. Well, it certainly feels like Filoni did that. Um, but I think in an appropriate way and in a way that really worked for me and it, in a way that didn't feel like he was ripping Andor, but at the same time, he was fold, gently folding it in. Like, you know, when you're folding in egg whites, when you're, you know, baking, right? You got to keep that structure. And uh, I think they did it. And I'm pretty impressed by it because I've been a little, wall, you know, season one, season two, Book of Boba, Obi-Wan, you know, like, oh, like I really want to like this stuff, but I'm nervous. And uh, season, episode three, season three, I'm starting to feel like uh, things are firming up nicely. I I like the direction that we're going. Yeah, I mean, I said on the Discord today, this, I think, is the beginning of the clone multimedia arc. Yes. Because, you know, back in the day, back between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, Lucasfilm put out a bunch of different Clone Wars media cartoon, I think comics, you know, toys, whatever, whatever they wanted. And it became the Clone Wars multimedia project. And this was how they sort of bridged the gap between the second and third movies. Now, that's all been scrapped and made non-canon now. Interesting. But nowadays, I think that we're moving towards this interconnectedness that we haven't seen since then, where yeah. you're going to see the Bad Batch uh, going for this clone arc, trying to work with the Mandalorian to fix the sequel trilogy. That's the goal here. I really think so. I think we're trying to explain somehow Palpatine returned in a satisfying way. 
Didn't you push out a big pile of internet points onto into the center of the table and made a bet, uh, made a little wager on the Palpatine storyline? Relative, I don't know. To- I've been pretty liberal with my chips lately. Okay. Well, I remember you at some point saying that you thought that they were going to go for the. Maybe it was in the Bad Batch episode that we did. Maybe. Um, that you, you thought that they were aiming towards the Palpatine storyline. I think so. I think that's what we're moving towards is let's explain how Palpatine had backup plans in motion. Okay. Interesting. Well, it was quite a storyline. So I am good to go. I've got a few callbacks that I want to jump on before we get into the scene by scene. So we can kind of speed round these if you're good for that. All right, let's do it. Uh, question, did Din, was he yanked or did he fall? Did he step off the ledge or did the mythosaur grab him and pull him down? I think he fell in. I think, didn't, um, didn't Bo say he fell in this episode? Okay, I think you're right, but I, there was a lot of discussion of people were theorizing yeah. that he was yanked. I don't think he was yanked. I think I'm, he fell. I'm in the fall category as well. Um, something that I am a little bit like, oh, I don't want to, you know, go down this road, but people are shipping uh din and bow do we have a din bow or a bow din shut it down yeah i'm with you i do not want it i do not want it what are they gonna like hit their helmets together i I, can we just have a workplace environment where uh uh, opposite sex friends are just friends and it's okay like do we have to do a relationship i'm fine without it i i'm glad that they're buddies and comrades in arms and all that stuff I, i don't need it to go any further agreed if Din is to become the leader of the Mandalorians, he can't rule without Bo-Katan, can he? Um, he doesn't know his Mandalorian history. He kind of needs a hand that he can rely on, who's a badass and knows their shit. And I think, I mean, if, if Bo goes, or I mean, if, if uh, Din goes that direction, I don't think he can do it without Bo. Like, Bo's got to be his hand. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I think she'd be a great resource. Right. And she, I don't know that she wants to rule anymore. I think she's been sort of disabused of that notion. Well, she lost her sad girl chair, so maybe she needs a new palace. Maybe she did. That was very sad. Uh, last episode, no wonder it looked so good. The director, Rachel Morrison, apparently is a very well-known uh, director of photography. And she even earned a nomination in the, uh, an Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography, making her the first woman to be ever recognized in that category. And it really showed in last episode. So mm, it was so good. I, it was a sumptuous feast. Cool. Yeah, it looked great. What's your over-under on Grogu actually speaking uh, a basic word in this episode before the... I mean, not this episode, in the season before it's over. Um, I think they're leading to it. I think yeah. it's, it's more likely than not with Peli Mato sort of, you know, trying to claim that she said he said her name. Right. Yeah, I think they're definitely... And he's being more vocal in this episode than he has in the past. So I think they're driving us towards that. Um, Can I just say that I think the reason why Din can't use the Darksaber is because his heart is in conflict with itself. You need a t-shirt, man. (laughs) Right? Because the the crystal, the energy has to flow through the crystal. And if you're conflicted and blocked up, it's not going to work. Sure. Yeah. You have to go with the Darksaber. I actually posted a video in the Discord. I think I'll put it in the show notes too, which is a video of a Rebels fight between a Jedi and someone wielding the Darth Saber, the Darksaber, the Darth Saber, the the Darksaber. And it is the the effect that I want from the Darksaber. I've talked about it on the pod before. Uh, I want it to like 
Swoosh. looked like it's almost bending and, mm-hmm. and becoming a sheet. It looks so cool, and I just want that. So anyway, right. I'm going to link that. Okay. But uh, yeah, yeah, it takes people time to learn how to wield this thing. Last one, speaking of the Darksaber, Johnny Fallout uh, wrote in on our Discord and said, are we going to just not talk about how the weird spider creature with the eye defeated Mando, and then Bo-Katan defeated the creature, so technically isn't the Darksaber really hers now? Well, I've actually seen speculation on Reddit about this where people say, no, it has to be like a face-to-face honorable fight. It can't just be a trap. They didn't fight. He just trapped Din. Okay. He just caught him in a trap. Got it. All right. So it wasn't like single combat squaring off. Right. Mm. Right. I think it has to be sort of a a duel almost. Okay. Fair enough. I could be wrong about that. I mean, write in if you have any other thoughts, but I, I think that they are going with that vibe in the show, at least. Yeah, that's certainly what it feels like, but uh, people were arguing the technicality of it one way or the other. Oh, who owns the magic sword? We're going to find the (laughs) rules there? I don't think so. All right, you ready for the scene-by-scene breakdown? I'm ready. All right, so the previously on really sets up the Dr. Pershing and Kane subplot. I was like, why are we getting this? And then, oh, yeah, obviously, here we go. And we are in with a cold open right where we left off last week with Mando and Bo-Katan in the Mines of Mandalore. Din has been redeemed, and Bo is his witness. Din collects a sample of water for proof, and Bo asks him if he saw anything living in the living waters. So Bo clearly thinks that she's hallucinating. Okay. Because there's no way there could possibly be a living mythosaur down there. Right, and then that just sort of shrugged them off and ignored them. I do think it's sort of almost like... A, a holy experience if you're religious, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, having a having a an interaction with God, if you will. Sure. You know, a lot of people, you know, who are religious sort of you say, you know, I God spoke to me. Well, I think that was her religion sort of coming true for her. Right. Oh, mm. we used to ride these mythosaurs and they're all gone now, but they were crazy. And this used to be a den. And, you know, she's mocking the plaque that tells the story right. when she first comes in. And right. then all of a sudden, oh, my God, the, the plaque's real. This is really interesting, too, how they're slowly uh, walking us through Bo-Katan's convert, conversion. Yeah. I don't know that she's going to be a full convert, but she is softening her attitudes about certain things. And the fact that she's willing to go with Din to the covert really is saying something. And then just being around Din, like when he honors her father by saying this is the way, like, it, like with all seriousness. And she was really taken aback by that. And so she's finding something different in interacting with uh, Din Djarin and the values that he's bringing forward. And it's a really interesting arc because, I mean, they slammed right to the minds of Mandalore in episode two. So what do, else do we have in store for us for the rest of the season? Like, what is Bo's arc for the rest of the season? If they're bringing us this, because that's normally getting to the mines would normally be a season ender, right? A penultimate episode thing. Well, I think in the old Mandalorian, yeah. But I yeah. think that this is a better option is, you know, Agreed. wrapping these arcs up quickly and then moving on and not having 17 filler episodes in between. And what I'm saying is, is that now we have a huge runway for Bo's arc and we have no idea where they're going to take it. Yeah, but they certainly no, I'm are excited. turning her away from her jaded point of view, which you know was a result from 
her aspirations of being the you know the a new leader of Mandalore, and so they're swinging her around, and I have no idea where they're where they're going to land her. All right, counterpoint. Yes. Does anyone know Katie Sackhoff's filming schedule right now? Because mm. maybe she just wants to be a voice actor for a while. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, question? Did Grogu use force power to help Din, or was he just like trying to um, coo into Mando's ear to wake him up? I didn't. Well, I, I don't see. know. I don't know. It seemed like it could go either way. Okay. Yeah. There was no clear evidence that I saw anyway. Yeah. I think he was just waking up for a while. Okay. All right. They take off from the surface of Mandalore and Bo's ship, the Gauntlet, and route back to Kalevala. Grogu makes some strange sounds that distract them, and then they're attacked by a squadron of TIE interceptors. Din jumps into the rear gunner seat as Bo flies them back so Din can get to his ship. I was just hype about this scene. You know, it was just yeah. a fun scene to watch. This was a great fight scene. It looked amazing. These felt like real threats, the TIE Interceptors, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. Not much to say, but beyond that. Uh, I really appreciated the fact that we've seen uh, action in many movies where there's a gunner, right? The pilot and the gunner, uh, don't get cocky kid, all that stuff. And a lot of times they've brought back the same little radar device and some of the same sound effects some of the same visual effects. So they put us in the same situation between the pilot and the gunner and fighting off the odds. But this time, they changed up the radar, they changed up the gun style, they changed up all the sound and visual effects. And I was like, oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It makes sense that this thing would have a gun in the rear and someone would shoot with it. But like, why are you rehashing 77? Um, sure. And I was just like, oh, that's so refreshing. Thank you. I really appreciated the way that they, they handled this fight sequence. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It looked great. It sounded great. Altogether, great sequence. And retrospectively, it adds a nice punch right at the beginning because a big majority of this episode is talky talk. So we get our action scratch at the beginning and that sort of holds us through to the end, I think, so that we don't feel like, oh, when's the action going to happen? When's the action going to happen? They gave it to us right up at the front. This felt like Luthen, if you haven't watched Andor, mm. go forward because mm. this is a great sequence and I want you to be surprised by it. But in Andor, this feels like Luthen all of a sudden, you know, destroying those TIE fighters. Right. Yeah. Very cool stuff. And and it really just adds a spice to the to the episode. It seasons it with yeah, violence absolutely. rather than making it the core function, which I think has been the case on some of the previous Mandalorian episodes. As Bo brings them in, Din readies himself to drop, and Grogu buttons up his egg. Din uses the drop port and gets his N1 off the ground and fights off an interceptor, Tom Cruise style. Yeah, again, cool scene, right? <laughs> Feel the need, the need for speed. This was like Top Gun 3. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. All these action sequences, I don't have a ton to say about them, but no. I, I enjoyed them. That's he my used- main vibe. He used some sort of torpedo uh, to take out that first interceptor. I didn't know quite what it was, um, but it was, a, it was a different kind of munition than his, like, uh, blasters. Meanwhile, Bo leads the other interceptors on a chase through the cliffs of her homeworld. After a few close scrapes and worrying sounds from R5, Din joins the fight to help take out the remaining ships. Bo uses a modified tail slide uh, Vacher's Bell Maneuver. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, no idea. Uh, to kill the last interceptor as they fly back, 
They see bombers attacking house crees. That, uh, I tried to do some internet research about that tail slide, uh, Vacher's bell maneuver thing, and there's a lot of weird physics involved, and I couldn't follow it at all. Oh. But it was visually, it's very cool. Like, if you try to read the description of how this maneuver works, uh, you really have to have an aeronautical mind, and I, I don't necessarily. Well, I don't know if I do either, but right. it was very sad to see House Kreese get destroyed, although the, the sad girl chair, I mean, she's going to miss it. How, where's she going to sleep now? You know, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's her bed. <laughs> it was very reminiscent. There was one shot in particular that really called back to some of the shots they showed of the bombing of Mandalore itself, the perch. Uh-huh. And so I got like a real vibe. And so when Bo was like, oh, my God, like I really f- kind of felt for her and felt her pain there. Because, yeah, where is she going to go now? As they pursue the fleeing bombers, they are met with a larger force of fighters and have to flee the planet. Din sends jump coordinates to Bo and they hyperspace escape to join up with the covert. Yeah, we knew that they were going there, right? Yeah. Oh, they'll never find us. Yeah, we knew. Yeah, all right. All right. So the open question of where did these interceptors and bombers come from, right? So we've got to leave that open. It's Moff Gideon, right? Like, it's got to be Moff Gideon. They tease it later when they're talking with the Amnesty crew, when Dr. Pershing joins up with them. Uh, Somebody says, well, I heard a rumor that he escaped. So Giancarlo's getting his paycheck this season. Mark my words. I think so. All right. So we get the title card for the episode, The Convert. And I think the title could be, do you have a sense of who it's referring to? Because it could be a couple different people. I think it is a few different people, right? I think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's uh, Pershing as being a convert to the New Republic, which, by the way, the New Republic, as we just learned in the way it defends the uh, its planets. Boy, oh boy, is it weak. But anyway, uh, and and then it's also Din, I think. Well, he's not really a convert. He's he's uh, returning to God. Mm -hmm. And then you have Bo, right? She's a yeah. convert to the new covert. I would also think uh, Elia Kane, because she's converted from the Empire ostensibly to the New it Republic. Did. did she? Yeah, we don't know, right? She That's the question. Yeah, open, big open question. So let's get into that. So, um, oh, and I just want to point out from an editing standpoint, something that I thought was really nicely done was when Din and Bo jump to hyperspace, that's when we drop into the Pershing subplot. And then at the end of the Pershing subplot, they return from hyperspace. So they use the hyperspace as a bookend to signal us that this is going to be a different storyline that we're following here. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed just staying with the Dr. Pershing line and not doing this sort of interwoven plot line. Bouncing back and forth. Yeah, for sure. All right, so um, we see Dr. Pershing giving a TED Talk at the Oscars. I I mean, I don't know what this place (laughs) was. All right, we also see a shot of who will turn out to be former communications officer Elia Kane from Moth Gideon's crew, and now Amnesty Officer G-68, adjusting her New Republic insignia. Dr. Pershing gives a talk about cloning and his backstory into why he got involved into genetic research in the first place. After the event, he is fawned over by Corsican elites. Do you think that, because I, th- I think that Dr. Pershing was very earnest the whole episode. Mm-hmm. I do think he sort of fell into his work with the Empire. Mm-hmm. And he's 
almost the most dangerous kind of scientist, which is whoever funds the research I want to do is the side that I'm on. Right. I think that this is very reminiscent of sort of the U.S. hiring former Nazi scientists oh, yeah. after I've, World War II. Mm-hmm. I've got a note of You know, the whole later. NASA thing. Yep. And yeah, it, it was it was cool to see. I mean, this is something that I haven't thought of before is what do you do with the, the remnants of the empire that you're like, you can't just throw everybody in prison, right? Mm-hmm. There, was, there were how many millions of soldiers? Right. What do you do with them? This is what you do, apparently. And it is not effective. So did you notice his weird ear thing where he sort of paused and like pulled, tugged on his ear? No. He does it later in the episode. And I couldn't quite figure out what it was going on. I don't know if that's just his tell to saying that he's like having deep feelings or something well i don't think he knows what's going on anymore either so this is also where i first got my first notes of andor like with the big hologram because it reminded me of um oh god don't shoot marva marva thank you yeah no that's a good catch this whole sequence just felt super andor and and in the best way right i I really do think it, it felt like a unique flavor of andor and I can't believe that, like, this dude is, like, headlining this red carpet event, and then they send his ass home alone with, like, a, <laughs> a really janky droid in the, in the speeder car thing, like, all by himself. It was like, well, what is this? This is just self-congratulatory, right? This is mm-hmm. the New Republic saying, look how much right. better we are. Yes. Look how great we are compared to the Empire. We give people a second chance. But really, that second chance is working a dead-end job and sort of losing your passion. Right. Totally. And then being, yeah, warehoused into these, you know, big uh, estate flats. Yeah. It looks like a terrible place to live. It just, it's just, it looks basically like an outdoor prison. You have a little bit larger of a rec area, but it's pretty much you're in prison and then you do menial labor. Right. And well, in the andor of it all, right? Because that's where Cheryl's mom uh, lived in a very similar style. Oh, true. Very similar. True. Will we see Pershing eating cereal now that he's been through the mind flare? Well, I want to. Uh, I want to see uh, Cyril's mom, uh, like next door, like in the apartment next door, or something like that. What are you looking at? <laughs> Will Pershing be eating cereal with Cyril and Dedra next season? Ooh, that would be very interesting. Doctor Pershing takes a lonely cab ride back to Amnesty Housing. There, he meets other former Imperial soldiery, and he recognizes Kane. They introduce themselves by their designation number, and they invite Pershing for a drink. We hear rumors of Gideon's possible escape, and we're introduced to the concept of the Mind Flayer. They discuss old times and food rations, as all soldiers do, specifically yellow travel biscuits. Hmm. So, first of all, the dehumanization of identifying yourself by your number, right? Interesting. I was having trouble why? making a sense of why they were doing the, the designation numbers. That's a good point. It doesn't seem like they're required to. Uh-huh. It's just they, they seem like they're sort of cogs in this machine. But at the same time, we don't know if Elia Kane and even the other former Imperials are really fully on board with this. So maybe they're acting as submissive as possible when they're in the open. And then behind closed doors, they have a scheme. Because I do think that there's an argument at the end of this episode that Kane's whole goal was just to get the uh the supplies and figure out what person was doing interesting yeah there's a big mystery there and we don't know they're certainly talking the talk and like being very overt about talking the talk oh yes here's to the new cheers to the new republic right they're trying to be very uh overt about their uh new allegiances 
and yeah. worried that the new republic is listening in as the empire would have been. Can I tell you mm-hmm. that I cannot stop confusing this actor with the daredevil actor? The M34 guy, the guy who invites Pershing no, for a drink? No, Pershing. I oh, cannot Pershing. stop oh, confusing oh, right. Pershing with yeah. Matthew Murdoch. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, there's a there's a strong resemblance. You know who uh Pershing gives me vibes of? is the um, scientist from The Expanse. Okay. Uh, okay, the, the one without emotions. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. Uh, Corda something? Yeah, not Cordyceps. That's yeah, it's show. not Cordyceps. <laughs> it's something else. Uh, Cordovar, maybe? I don't know. It That's was close. something like That's that. That's really close. I did read all the books, but I actually didn't really watch the show, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, that was that's a, that's very close. Do the actor who's playing M thirty four, the big swarthy guy who invites Pershing for a drink, is uh-huh. he? He seems so familiar, and I I looked him up, and I didn't recognize anything that he was in. Um, and he really confused me because he seemed very charismatic, and like I should have seen him in an MCU movie or something. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't recognize him at all. So okay, it could just be that type. What do you think of the amnesty program overall? Oh, it's a complete failure. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, what's happening? They, they First of all, they have very poor security. Yeah. They don't even send a human to talk to these people. They just go, <laughs> okay, I'm a robot. Answer yes or no to these questions. Are you a terrorist? No. Do you love the, the New Republic? Sure. Do you, do you hate the Empire? Yeah. It's, it's, she doesn't even log the red flags of, oh, it's, it's really all about helping the New Republic, right? I mean, you send that to your bosses, guy. Right. Just, uh, <laughs> absolute like, there's a, failure of a program. There, there is a real big question there, because if you think about the number of um, soldiers under arms that the Empire had to have, enlisted, officer corps, all the specialty branches, like that is just millions upon millions upon millions of people. What does the New Republic do with them all? Right. I mean, we've seen in, in human history over and over and again, when, when a, a regional or national power is defeated, you got all this leftover stuff and not just stuff, but you got leftover people who some yeah. are uh, ideologically driven and some are not. And you got to do something with them. Right. You got to you got to fit them in back into society somehow. Right. Well, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have a program like this at all. I'm saying that this iteration of the amnesty program is horseshit. Not so good. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm on I, I'm spicy tonight. So yes, I got you. You got your song. You got your song like that. Yeah, for I you to come song. up with a song. That's a all right, John. Before we uh, munch on a nice box of yellow travel biscuits, let's take a quick break. back. As Dr. Pershing puts himself to bed, he reviews the Hitchhiker's Guide to Coruscant <laughs> and then is interrupted by his doorbell. There's no one there, but he finds a box of yellow biscuits on his doorstep. Yeah, so I, I didn't know who did it at first, but it does make a lot of sense in hindsight. You know, earnest yeah. trust with this whole thing. Oh, I sent you an anonymous gift. Haha. <laughs> She's very flirty, too. You know, it's 
It's uh, very intentional, I think. There's a very, yeah, and there's a lot of trust building things that happen between them. She's actively, I mean, retrospectively, you can see that she's actively working him like as a good human intelligence source. Um, I was on pins and needles the whole time waiting for him to get black bagged or assassinated. I really thought like, oh, like this is not going to go well. So when he steps out the door and he's like looking around, I'm going to look this way and I'm going to look that way. I was like, dude. What are you doing? You're like high value target. <laughs> Get inside. Yeah. Well, I don't think he's worth much anymore after this episode. No, that's for sure. What did you think about this whole Pershing arc? Did you feel that it was uh, time well spent? I felt like it went a little overlong in some of these sequences. I think they could have been more efficient, but I'm not sure. It was a longer episode. It was one of the longest episodes we've had so far. Yeah. I liked it, actually. I thought okay. that it was a good length. I I enjoyed sort of seeing the relationship building, right? It felt very natural. Mm. The dialogue felt very good. Mm-hmm. And so I was captivated the whole time, and I didn't mind the length. I was also 4 a.m. when I watched this, and I was feeding a newborn, so okay. I was forced to be awake anyway. So maybe I just had a little bit of time dilation. Fair enough. Yeah, I just thought the storytelling was... There was just a little slack that they could have taken up in it. I think they could have done all the same stuff and it could have been a little tighter and I would have felt a little bit more emotional. And that's not to say that this is a bad episode. That's just, you know, a little bit of a nitpick. So at his job, Pershing is brought a collection of memory disks to process and we get the setup for his job and the work of deconstructing the empire. Very Cyril Karn. Mm-hmm. Living in his little pu- cubicle. Also a little bit of severance vibe. Just everybody just there and doing sort of tasks that don't make sense and are very menial but he's really jovial at first right he's really mm-hmm. let me helping help. the new you know, let me do whatever i need to do i mean i'm glad that i was not put in a jail cell so i'll just do it i also got a little uh flavor of the expanse a la mars right at the end when bobby's doing all the ship breaking stuff they're okay. taking apart all their, their war machine so it just sort of called back to that for me as well missable detail those memory discs that he's processing that looked to me is exactly as the same kind of disc that they used in Rogue One once the plans were transmitted up to the Rebel fleet. So as the Rebel officers are running, being chased by Darth Vader, that's what they had in their hand, that same style of disc. Interesting. Yeah. Thought okay. that was cool. Nice little connectivity. Yeah. Pershing and Kane take a walk through the Magic Kingdom, eating photon fizzles and talking about Coruscant and Pershing's research. Cain plants the seed of continuing his studies and being able to help the New Republic by pursuing his scientific endeavors. They admire the peak of Umate, and then Cain plays a small joke on Pershing. Is this the first time we've seen Umate in live action? I didn't know what it was, and I didn't ever recall hearing about it before. But I thought it was a cool detail. Yeah. Oh, that's that's definitely in canon. That's definitely sure. been I spoken it. about before, at yeah. least. I think that, I don't know if it was this scene, but one of the scenes where they're walking around, I've, I've seen talk on Reddit about, this is one of the scenes where Obi-Wan and Satine are hanging out. Oh, okay. They hang out in one of these areas. So that's a nice little callback. Right. And since I haven't watched all those yet, I don't think that uh, I would have had that in my memory banks. That's some obscure Clone Wars episode. So who knows? Sure. And as, a, as the casual fan in our duo, I thought it was a very cool detail. I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, the highest, like, imagine Mount Everest being just this tiny little rock sticking out 
you know, uh, from from the ground in this, you know, right. city park. Like, oh, that's interesting. Well, the idea of a city planet is such a unique thing in Star Wars, and right. I'm glad that they've doubled down on it. So I thought this was also a good little beat here to set up for later we're in the subway car, where, um, you know, she sort of tricked him to, like, reach out to the stone, but then later, like, she's got to get his trust to jump between cars and uh, jump off the train at the end. So I just thought that this was, like, a nice little tonal setup for what's to, to come. Like, nice little storytelling uh, flourish. Yeah, yeah. So here's the question is, when did she start working with the New Republic to arrest him? Because was this sort of a plant of, oh, we're going to send a droid to follow you Mm -hmm. and then you can hop off when it's safe. We'll make sure it's slow enough. Mm. Yeah. Oh, you mean on the train? Well, we're not there yet. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, just in general, you know, I mean. I think she... How much of this was set up by the New Republic is the question. Right. And is she a plant in the Amnesty Forces to be trolling for people who might be motivationally, ideologically questionable? Because she says to him, in, was it in this scene? She's like, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? No, I think it was in a different scene. She's like, do you understand what I'm saying? There are people who might want to help you. And he responds positively. So she's probably logging all of this, you know, and reporting back to her superiors that, hey, I've got a fish on the line. This guy might bite. Okay, so keep working him, keep working him, uh, and to see if he'll, he'll jump over. Yeah, maybe it's like you have a year off your sentence in the rehabilitation program, mm-hmm. the amnesty program, if you catch the people who aren't doing their jobs. Sure, yeah. Which is very... Shall I say, you know, that internal informant kind of thing is something used by uh, more totalitarian style regimes, less so well, open democratic societies. That's, that's used by open <laughs> democratic societies as well. Let's not pretend it isn't. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. There's certainly been some domestic law enforcement agencies who have... Uh, uh, moving on. Moving on. This is not a political podcast. Dr. Pershing meets with a wellness droid to check in on his amnesty progress. We learn that genetic engineering is prohibited by the Coruscant Accords. Yeah, so that's interesting, right? Because the Old Republic literally created the cloning program. Mm-hmm. And now they say, okay, but maybe that wasn't so good. So this is an interesting Bad Batch tie-over, too, because a lot of the season, without spoiling it, is dealing with uh, clone versus non-clone politics in the Empire. So that's a very interesting uh, tie over there. Yeah. And I could talk about the creation of the clones and the complications of it for hours. So don't let me. But okay. <laughs> the clones were a problem created by the Jedi. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's often misunderstood because I misunderstood this for a long time. So maybe I'm just dumb. But I think that it's a common misunderstanding that, you know, Dooku and Palpatine orchestrated the beginning of the clone program. Mm-hmm. But in reality, Sifo Dias was a real Jedi who went to the Kaminoans and said, hey, I foresee that there's going to be a great war, so I'm going to pre-book some clones right. for the Jedi. Right. Not even for the Republic, but for the Jedi. And also, I want you to put a chip in them that will inhibit them and allow them to you know, listen to any command. And that is what plants the seed for Order 66. Wow. There you go. The, the Jedi are their own worst enemies in this regard. 
So anyway, the point is, it might be a good idea to prohibit cloning since that was such a big issue. And, you know, you look at the way the clones were treated after the war. They really weren't treated like human beings. They were essentially slaves during the war and they were treated like, you know, garbage afterwards. Right. That's my clone rant for the night. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Back at Amnesty Housing, Pershing asks Kane to help him. He needs to get a mobile lab station and Kane proposes an idea. So... How is a mobile lab station going to let him do complicated cloning stuff? I mean, to me, a a mobile lab station sounds like a, a large object thing, like a trailer. Yeah. Not like a, a suitcase uh, full of a few slides and microscopes. Yeah, they didn't introduce this well, because I thought he meant I need the whole station, but apparently he meant I need some things from a, lo- a mobile lab station. Mm-hmm. And are those only important to Pershing? Or are they important otherwise? Because Keane certainly gives him a look there at the end, like, thank you for the briefcase. I think that, okay, this is my theory, is that Kane is a double agent. She's, you know, using her position with the New Republic of rooting out Imperials to mm-hmm. sort of gain intel for the, the main Empire remnant. So right. I think that she's in contact with Moff Gideon's forces. Mm-hmm. And getting some intel so that they can continue Pershing's work. So in the previously on setup for this episode, when we see Kane in that, she says, what have you got for me? Right? She's like, she's doing her communications officer thing, this sort of spy-like talk a little bit. So I kind of want to agree with you that somehow she's in cahoots with Gideon. And that, you know, maybe she's taking out the good doctor because if Gideon can't have him, they don't want anybody else to have him. Like a kind of a spoiler role here. See, I don't know, because I think I think maybe and, and again, I'm making this up, so it could be totally wrong. Maybe <laughs> we should just move on in a minute. But it's all made up anyway. I think maybe it's, it is a long time, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I think that. She is trying to see what he was getting and what he needed to finish his research uh, so that she okay. can supply the remnant of the Empire. She can send at least the inventory saying, right. okay, these are the things that he picked out. Because you could deduce a lot from what uh-huh. people were using, right? Oh, very Especially clever. Especially because I'm sure they have records of what he was doing. So probably supplies plus records equal solution. Interesting. Very good theory. You're a devious man. We jump back to Pershing <laughs> at his workstation. I should work for Moff Gideon. <laughs> you should. Um, and we learn about the need to scrap Imperial equipment and technology. And then we jump back to the wellness droid and Pershing lies about his feelings and finds justification to do whatever is necessary to help the New Republic. He rings on Kane's door and confirms his willingness to get the lab equipment. Again, why are you sending droids? to do vibe <laughs> checks. I mean, even C-3PO wasn't going to vibe check that one. I think the only droid who could vibe check is R2-D2, and nobody understands him anyway. Wait. So do you think B-2 could uh, do a emotion check like that, an emo check? All right. All right. I'll give you that one. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, B-2 is very self-absorbed, self-involved in some ways. True. Um, so True. I don't know. I mean, he would need some cleanup on his programming. 
He's this only is, interested in Marva and Brasso and Cassian. Right, exactly. This is where I had in my notes very World War II, post-World War II, sort of scrapping the uh, equipment and trying to find homes for all these you know, scientists and research technicians and stuff like that. A lot of Nuremberg excuses here. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, only following orders. Pershing psychs himself up and then heads out. He and Kane exceed their permitted area and slip aboard a light rail style transport. They flee from the ticket agent droids and then jump off the back of the train as they arrive at the shipyard depot. Yeah, uh, just fun chasing. I mean, right. I, I enjoyed Pershing being so awkward on the train and not mm-hmm. knowing how to do basic transportation. Right. Whereas I loved how then Kane was so casual with everybody, you know, happy Tuesday or whatever the equivalent was. Right. Yeah. 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 Wednesdays. Yeah. You know, hump day or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I thought it was interesting. I I picked this detail up on the rewatch when I was doing my notes. They really linger on the boss box of biscuits as Pershing leaves his apartment. And I was like, oh, there's a nice little tell right there. Right. Like we, you know, where who else could it be but Kane? And what does this? What yeah. are these biscuits? Where did she get the biscuits? And what does it really mean? So, um, as yeah. a former NYC resident, did you hear anything in the sound effects? Because there were some really authentic subway sounds in the. Oh yeah, it was very effects. authentic. But yeah, I mean, the only thing it was missing was somebody putting on way too loud music and then dancing in a way where he <laughs> almost injures everybody on the train. Showtime! And then walking around with some kind of you know hat or something to collect money, and then. The convenient landing zone when they jump off the train. I'm like, yeah, okay, shrug, whatevs. You know, like it was pretty silly yeah. that they landed on yeah. that fluffy pile of stuff. But I did like the all the little moments of trust building that Kane. She's really working him, and Pershing's just a heel. Like he is just missing all of the signals that this person's being way too nice to him. Yeah. Well, I think that Pershing has been naive his whole life, right? Right. Thinking that he right. could work for an evil empire and just do good stuff, you know, his work and just do the, you know, good things under the evil empire. I mean, that's extremely naive. And he even now is, is like, oh, yeah, it'll be fine if I just directly disobey the mm-hmm. law mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. My risk program. my freedom. Right. We see shots of multiple star destroyers in the wrecking yard as they slip aboard one. Kane takes Pershing to a lab where he collects what he needs. They hear noises and rush out, only to be caught by New Republic officers. Pershing is arrested, and Kane does a heel turn, as it is clear that she has set him up. I did enjoy this. I enjoyed mm-hmm. the, the flip. It was a good twist. I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, the, the heel turn was, was great, and she played it off really smooth. She was terrifying in the end. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was scared of her by the end, you know. You know, she's just smiling and, and doing awful things, and who knows what she's capable of. There's a really great moment in the lab when he's collecting up his stuff, and uh, she says something to him about, oh, it's interesting, you know, you've always known what you wanted to do. She then steps back into the shadows and is in completely in shadow, and then she steps out into the light again, and then is sort of half in light, half in shadow. So I was like, oh, nice little visual storytelling clue there and that's just before they hear the first sounds of like maybe somebody else is in the ship right right 
I, I just, I really need to know how she got to this point. Mm-hmm. Because they immediately just arrest him. They don't even question her. No, yeah, she's, a, yeah, she's an undercover, right? Totally. Right. I need the backstory here. Yeah. Um, another Andor callback. Uh, it just sort of reminded me, not visually of uh, Ferex, but, you know, just that what Ferex did was a ship-breaking planet, right? They would take apart yeah. ships like this. And so here we have this beautiful starship porn of all of these uh, decommissioned Star Destroyers in dock. Like, for as far as the eye can see, that was just really cool. Yeah, the game Jedi Fallen Order, which we're going to cover on the Lorehounds play, that also uh-huh. starts in a ship breakdown planet. Okay. The main character starts off working there. So, yeah, it's nice to see these kinds of things popping up. Very cool. Pershing wakes up in some kind of medical facility facility as a Mon Calamari technician readies him for a procedure using a 602 mitigator, which is adapted from the dreaded Mind Flayer technology. As Pershing begins treatment, G-68 watches. When the Twi'lek tech leaves the room, she turns up the intensity knob and eats a package of yellow travel biscuits as Pershing suffers under the treatment. It was a trap! <laughs> sure was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if this is the more humane version of this device, mm-hmm. why does it go to 11? Right. Why is there not a safety stop on that? Like, why can you actually go that high? That's a good point. Again, the, the New Republic is just <laughs> full of naive people <laughs> and doing an awful job. An awful, awful job. Like, no wonder the New Order, the First Order, sorry. No wonder the First Order popped up. <laughs> New Order is a different... Republic <laughs> is not doing anything. Yeah. They're just, they're just you know, giving yellow cakes to their traitors. <laughs> They're so bad that they play terrible uh, background music in the medical facility that's like supposedly supposed to soothe you. It was like that was even more terrifying than the device that they put on him. Not the kind of jizz we're used to in the Star Wars. No, universe, not at all. If you're just tuning in, that's not me saying something weird. That is what George <laughs> Lucas named the music in the Star that's Wars right. universe. Jizz. That is the, it is the for jazz some reason. Mm, I, yeah, we're not going to I'm not going to go there. Um, very Andor again, too, with this sort of torture device thing, this helmet that they're going to put on him. So, yeah, definitely. It reminded me of the Bix yep, torture. Exactly. As we close the Pershing subplot, we jump back in from hyperspace with Din and Bo, who arrive at the secret location of the covert. Din advises Bo that things might go more smoothly if she keeps her helmet on. Alas, there's no alligator turtle carcass. <laughs> that would have been the nice, uh, shoreline right? as they land. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, they cleaned that up really quick. Well, maybe they ate it. Yeah, I don't know. They got That'd a lot of Mandalorians gross. there. Yeah, or maybe something else ate it. I don't know. They were eating worm in the uh, <laughs> in one of the other shows. Was was it in the Mandalorian? I think uh, it was. Okay. Oh yeah, probably. Well, I don't know. They ate eggs anyway. That's for sure. Grogu did. Yeah. Um, as they land, they are met by Paz Vizla who challenges their right to be there. Din asserts that he's been bathed in the waters of Mandalore and Bo attest to his claim. Paz calls her a night owl and then calls them both apostates. Paz Vizsla is just an asshole. <laughs> and again, the Vizslas are, are just a huge problem. And uh, Bo-Katan already served under, I don't, we don't know how related they are, but a different Vizsla who was the leader of Death Watch. 
Mm-hmm. So she is familiar with the Vizslas and she is not happy with them because that Vizsla is the one who allied with Darth Maul and got Death Watch destroyed and then Mandalore destroyed and her sister killed. Right. I was wondering what the, um, the deeper roots there was because he calls her out with that Night Owl comment. Yeah, I think, I think it's... Honestly, Bo has way more to be mad about than he does because mm-hmm. Vizsla, you know, the other Vizsla really, you know, destroyed her family. So are they like... I'm not a Harry Potter uh, aficionado, but are they like the house House Slytherin here? Are they like <laughs> the, the bad guys that everybody loves to hate? Well, no. I mean, again, the Vizslas are the ones who created the dark saber, mm. so they right. have some That's pretty true. strong roots. Okay, it's just that recent generations of Vizslas have been iffy, right? So uh, Bo is looking really good in her armor here. Uh, I love the yeah. costuming that they've they've got set up for her. It, it looks great, and I'm loving her character. I love her helmet. I love her whole styling. It's it's awesome. You know, I didn't even mock her in my song. No, you didn't. You were very kind. You've been you've you've uh, your sharp edges towards Bo have uh, been buffed down a little bit. It's my Bodemption arc. <laughs> I'm so sorry, dear listeners. Um, so this is when, uh, it twigged for me that I was like, oh, wait, didn't Bo also bathe in the waters? And I was like, oh, she's not an apostate anymore, is she? According to Children of the Watch. So let's just get one thing straight. Mm -hmm. There was no reason for Din to recite the poem as he got in the waters. He was just doing it for show. Sure. Right. I like the guy. I mean, he's, he's in it for the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. Just a fun thing. But yeah, you don't actually need to say anything. You just sort of dip your, te- your toe in there and you're good to go. Yeah. Splash some water on your helmet. You're off. The armorer takes the sample and Bo confirms that she rescued Din from the waters. The armorer tests the water and declares them both redeemed and welcomes Bo-Katan to the covert as long as she follows the rules, of course. Why does the armorer have the mirror of Galadriel? <laughs> Very funny. It's true. I mean, they were just in the Mines of Moria, so. That's true. We're really going all Tolkien here. Right. Well, it's just Tolkien's too, right? He's everywhere. They're not, yeah. you know, it's not Tolkien coming to us. We're going to Tolkien, so. I really love the lingering shot of the mythosaur sculpture that we have on the wall, and then they cut to Bo as she's being surrounded by all the other Mandalorians, and she's like, uh, what do I do with this knowledge? Like, I'm now among... This crew of people that I really had a lot of distaste and spite towards. And now I've seen the Mississaur and he's got the Darksaber. This is all like really weird. What do I do? She, yeah, she's just going with the flow at this point. Mm-hmm. She has to. She doesn't have her pouty, yeah. her, her pouty throne anymore. <laughs> her tantrum chair. Her tantrum chair. All right, John, should we take a little break and then come back for some listener feedback? Unless you've got anything else to add? I think I'm all set. Okay, we'll be right back. And we're back, and we have some feedback, too. First up, Marilyn R. Pakila, our favorite Tolkien scholar, is weighing in uh, even more on The Mandalorian. 
She's got a long one here. She's done some research because that is her profession. She says, hello, lorehounds. I'm honored by your estimation of my research skills. As a good researcher does, I was starting at the source that I knew best. You two. Oh, my goodness. Marilyn, stop. We're not a source. I do know that the word Kalevala is often translated as land of heroes. Okay, so this is just to set everybody up. Last episode, Marilyn wrote in to say that the word Kalevala, which is a planet in this season and in the Star Wars universe, is also a Finnish um, uh, mythological reference. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. So she says, and so that could easily be the connection, I suppose. My drawback at this point is that I have little to no knowledge of the history of the Mandalorian civilization and who came up with it. That's what I was hoping you two could help me with. When did the concept of Kalevala as a world first enter lore? Was it through a book, through animation, through a game? I'm virtually certain it was never in any of the nine films. If I knew something about the creator of whichever property it was that first used the term Kalevala, then I might be able to find some sort of link between that uh, and the use of the word. Then she writes in and she found uh, some more information. Um, and I'll touch on that when we get to the end of this email, so that because she's got a couple other things that she wants to say. She says, I skimmed the Wikipedia articles, and if I remember correctly, Kalevala was a planet or a moon to which a remnant of the Mandalorians fled after one of the cataclysms that rocked their civilization. Doesn't extract exactly strike any bells with any of the events in the Kalevala in terms of the, um, uh, the mythological, human mythological stories. But if anybody can tell me more stories of the planet or moon, I could probably link them to the stories in the epic if there are any connections. Perhaps this is a question to open up to all the listeners. For the time being, she says, I must decline your kind suggestion that I write an academic paper on the subject. You will understand that with such a scarcity of information, a paper is hardly likely to get off the ground. So let's see if any future information arises. I make no promises regarding papers, though at present I'm involved in a very in-depth project, which you might have heard of, the Earthsea. Mm, loving the Earthsea project. <laughs> I just edited it today. Perfect. So she then wrote in a couple of more emails, and she found some links that are very interesting. And we get some linkages to Leia's necklace that she's wearing at the end of the movie A New Hope. And that stone or that stuff is called Laponia. She says, stop the presses. I just may have found the link, pun intended, which goes all the way back to Princess Leia's jewelry in the final scene in the throne room. Uh, she puts a link in there. Uh, we'll put this in the show notes, John, if you see that there. Sure. She says, my theory, Filoni somehow found out the origin story of Leia's necklace. Notice that it is uh, Laponia, that Laponia had been brought up by the Kalevala jewelers and thought, hmm, that's a nifty name. I think I'll use it. Who knew? Of course, this may not be the answer, but since I have some Kalevala jewelry myself, I think I'll hold on to it now until other evidence presents itself. Why, yes, research librarians may indeed become somewhat intense when they are presented with a question. <laughs> Why do you ask? So, the necklace that Leia, that Carrie Fisher is wearing at the end of the New Hope movie, the 1977 movie, is a piece of jewelry that is made by uh, Kalevala jewelers, like they're actual jewelers, uh, and they are somehow connected to the Kalevala story in Finland. Um, there's a lot, I didn't read a lot of the, the information here. So that is an actual 
jewelry designer's design that Carrie Fisher is wearing that then is connected to Kalevala. And then that, so she's saying that, well, maybe Filoni knew that and that that was this Finnish, uh, this uh, mythology that's related to Finland. And so he sort of wrapped it all up and, and brought it forward again. Don't give him too much credit. Whew. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah. So well, thanks, Marilyn. Yeah. And if anybody's got any more information or wants to read uh, deeper on these links, let us know. Send us an email to starwars at thelorehounds.com or head over to our website and um, fill out the contact form or leave us a voicemail. Next up is Craig T on Twitter. Hey guys, I felt the need to write in because I felt David hit the nail on the head when he said that once you changed your perception of the Mandalorian, you could enjoy it more. I you think know that what, was Craig? You. It was me. Yeah. And Craig, I am now offended. I feel that the key to enjoying a lot of media is being in the right frame of mind. You don't watch a thriller looking to have a laugh. The Mandalorian is fun, easy to digest, family entertainment, and not everything has to be the same tone. Both The Mandalorian and Andor have been the standout shows of Star Wars because they have had a single identity and vision. Book of Boba Fett and Kenobi have been poor because they tried so hard to stick to canon and fan service. Star Wars should take advantage of its medium and scope and let its shows and movies stand on their own and play for specific audiences and not try to please everyone. That never works. Craig T. UK. Really vibe with Craig's uh, point here. And... I think that it's true that when you let the creator, well, it's not true in all cases, because if we let George Lucas run off the leash, <laughs> we don't get very good results. So it's true that Mandalorian and Andor have strong points of view, and I think I really appreciate that. I don't know, it's a, it's a fine balance, but I am also glad that in the Star Wars universe, we can have Andor and Mandalorian and Bad Batch all existing in the same viewing schedule that we have, you know, uh, in, you know in these last couple of years. Um, and it's great. I, I really do think we should let all of these different variations flourish. I don't know who originally said this, but the best way I've ever heard Star Wars described as is Star Wars is a universe, not a genre, right? Mm -hmm. It is a world, it is a universe that you can write many different kinds of stories in. Mm -hmm. It does not need to always be the same tone. Right. Yep, I agree with that. I think that's, that, that sums it up pretty well. Friend of the pod, Ed, via email. Subject line reads, Star Wars Strange Brew crossover. Yes, please. Ed must be one of our neighbors to the north. I heard that, like, if you find a mythosaur living in your waters, you get, like, free redemption, eh? Oh, man, I couldn't have done that. You wrote, you wrote read in Canadian accent in the outline. I couldn't. Thank you for doing it. They actually say A. Uh, in certain provinces, they will actually say A quite frequently. Like a valley girl might say like, which I okay. say sometimes too much as well. But A is a real thing in Canadian speak. You guys should totally review Strange Brew. Yes. Even Star Wars gags in there. Remember the Spuds McKenzie phenomenon? Very weird. It was Mando, very weird. I was cautiously <laughs> optimistic. After season three, episode one, it reminded me a bit much of Book of Boba, and I'm very happy with season three, episode two. I love the spider trap cyborg thing, and I want to know more about it. Even bigger one waiting on the surface when they get out. Love how the spider wrapped in in a steel cage. I also appreciated how Star Trek, the original series, the glowing eyes troglodytes were. Maybe they should dial up Din's Kirkness. <laughs> 
I'd only about 40% agree about the Adventure of the Week format. I thought season one was great, and I think they could sprinkle that in liberally, and I'd be in two to four episode arc, followed by one to three Adventure of the Week episodes, followed by another arc would give us the best of both worlds. More urgent advice to showrunners would be twofold. Live Hondo ASAP and let's throw back to old Star Trek in season length, 29 episodes per season. <laughs> no thank you on the second one, but I do love Hondo and I wish that he would uh, he would show up. I've, I've discussed Hondo with you, David. He's the pirate. Yep, exactly. Ed says, uh, pass that on, please. Thanks for the pods, Ed. Consider passed on because I know that the um, showrunners, I know Filoni is a, a frequent listener to our podcast. He writes in a exactly. lot, but it's uh, exactly he writes these really long emails. They're really tough to read. Um, I should say that uh, Ed's Canadian references at the top of this were in reference to my shout out to anyone, uh, any of our neighbors to the north uh, as being a significant portion of our statistically relevant portion of our uh, listening audience. So uh, shouting out to our, our different friends in different parts of the world. So thanks, Ed. Uh, I appreciate that. Yes, Buds McKenzie was a really weird phenomenon, and Strange Brew was a classic movie when you're in the middle of uh, middle school, when you're that sort of 12, 13-year-old age. It was perfect. And I was born in the 90s. Thanks, Ed, <laughs> for writing in, because I always enjoy hearing from you. Tobias from Sweden writes in, hi, guys. Just writing in from Sweden. This is another country shout out that we got a response to. So we got Canada and Sweden both in the same pod. Well done, people. Very nice. Hi, guys. Just writing in from Sweden to say I really like your pod. Came for and or stayed for The Last of Us. I had to consult my cousin, who actually has a way with words, regarding translating Lorehound. And he came up with M-O-P. It's actually an O with a... Umlaut. Two dot. Is it an umlaut or is that is that only when it's with a U? That's a good question. I'm not as much of a linguist to know. Oh, man. I know Marilyn's going to write in about this, which is a common TLA of militard overinterested person. I don't know what that is. Translating into person who is too interested in military stuff. When translating Lorehound, that would instead be middleogics overinterested. Which translates to person who is too <laughs> interested in mythological stuff. I think that's as close as I can get. All the best, Tobias. Sweden, <laughs> I am sorry for butchering your language. <laughs> but thank you, Tobias. That was awesome. I love person who is too interested in mythological stuff. Because that, yeah. that too in English adds a kind of like, this person's a little bit beyond where the norm is. <laughs> They're on the far fringe of what's uh, acceptable. Tobias, if you feel so inclined, send in a voicemail on our website at thelorehounds.com slash contact and tell me how to pronounce it. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. So I think we have a voicemail, don't we? Yes. Our friend Alicia from Amsterdam sent us a uh, voicemail. Uh, If you don't know Alicia, she is on our Discord. She is also on Twitter, which is where I first met her. And she's a prolific pop culture tweeter. And I've really appreciated a lot of her takes. She's got great info on Tolkien, on MCU, on the Star Wars stuff. And so we really appreciate her dropping into the pod. 
So uh, let's listen to her voicemail. Hi, Laura Hounds. Alicia from Amsterdam here, checking in with some thoughts about uh, Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 3. I notice it uh, seems to be a pretty divisive one on Twitter and Reddit. Um, I think that we need to think about this more as, as someone put it a while ago, the Star Wars show, you know, all of this uh, post original trilogy stuff, um, with like Mando showing up in Boba Fett, et cetera, et cetera. And in that way, it excites me because it moves the plot forward. Um, and yeah, I, I, we're kind of connecting to what's going on in Bad Batch and um I can't wait to see more behind the curtain stuff. I was getting definitely like some popcorn and or vibes or, you know, as John put it, the Saturday morning cartoon version. Um, I do still see people have some concerns about the fact that Bo-Katan hasn't brought up her sister Satine yet. Clone Wars fans are really eager about that. And there's some nervousness because of the, you know, some recent retcon controversies. Um, you know, especially with the recent Ahsoka novel and the Tales of the Jedi episode that kind of overwrote that. I don't think that's what's going on here. I'm super excited to see where she landed at the end of the episode, even though I want both her and Din out of there. I first want to find out all about this cult and all their weird ways. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So regarding the, the, controversy over retconning. Do you know uh, about this, David? I feel like no. we talked about it on Tales of the Jedi a little bit. Tangentially. I, I mean, is this the whole canon versus legend stuff? No, it's actually different. This is a novel that is canon. It is a, a canon novel called Ahsoka. I talked about it on Second Breakfast because I read it earlier right, this year. Right. And it is the story of Ahsoka after I have Order many 66. IP stacks in my head. <laughs> it's hard yeah, to sometimes yeah. pull up the details. Keep no going. No worries. Sorry. I'm here for you. Thank you. So the Ahsoka novel follows Ahsoka after Order 66 and sort of puts her on the path back to rejoining the cause, rejoining the rebel cause, right? Uh-huh. And, and going back to being active in the universe and not just a passive person. The Tales of the Jedi episode, which you and I watched and reviewed, you can go back on our, our Star Wars feed or on our regular feed back to December. And... Uh, it, it tells a very similar story, but it is very compressed and has conflicting details with the novels. And Filoni got a lot of flack for it because it seemed to retcon the novel. Mm-hmm. And it was very, it was seen as very disrespectful to the author of the novel. Okay. Now, I think that we don't have anything to worry about here. And Alicia, you said that we really don't, but. This is, Satine is a character made by Filoni, or at least used very much by Filoni in the Clone Wars. So I don't think Filoni's going to retcon himself. I think that we, I'd be more <laughs> worried if there were, if she was only in novels. Right. Well, again, we're tying in the animated and the live action um, more and more as we're moving forward. And so, um, and as we get, bring up the Ahsoka storyline, that is really going to do a lot of crossover work. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Alicia. You really have to watch Mandalorian for what it is and not just watch it as Andor. So I'm glad that you're along for the ride. I'm I'm happy to have you as a part of our community. I think we have a lot of great conversations on the Discord. Yeah, I, she puts her finger on the, the same thing that I, I we're hearing more and more around is, is that there is space for different Star Wars, right? There's There's space for Andor, there's space for this. There's a bad batch, all these things. And I think we can, I think we're, we might be on a good roll now. And I'm, I'm really fingers crossed that 
they can keep this vibe going where we can have these different properties. So, yeah. They're going to make a Yoda origin series, you know. Don't, it. don't, don't do it. Don't Somebody do it. said they're going to make a mini series <laughs> on Luke's hand that got cut off. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That cracked me up. Yeah. All right, John. Well, that was a fun episode. I, it's interesting, some of the conversation, too. There's, there's people who really dug the whole episode and were into the Pershing subplot. And then there are other people who felt that the Pershing subplot was a little bit jarring. And um, they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, nothing like a little controversy to get fans engaged, is there? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. The I, I don't think anybody is out there saying that this was a, a bad episode. I think there people are out there like, well, this was a cool storyline and this is the cool storyline, but I don't understand how we put them together. And I think people have a little bit of PTSD, too, from the uh, Book of Boba Fett taking over uh, the... Um, I'm sorry, the Mandalorian taking over the Book of Boba Fett. And it's like, what's going on here? What are they, what are they doing mixing these storylines? But I think that given that they've run uh, so fast and given us the minds of Mandalore and the redemption, where do we go from now? We've got a long runway of the rest of the season available to us. So I'm going to be interested to see if they're bringing this Pershing storyline in line with the Mandalorian. Or if this is a whole like subterranean plot that's going to connect back to other stuff. I don't know yet, but I thought that they did it pretty well. I didn't feel disjointed at all. I thought that was very interesting. Mo bo, mo money. <laughs> Let's go to the outro. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon shout out. Thank you to our patrons. Uh, thank you to our lore master patrons. Uh, you guys make uh, this possible. Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter O H, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, and Dork of the Ninjas. To all of our patrons, uh, especially the last few who have subscribed, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we really do appreciate all your support. Um, Absolutely. Our country of the episode is Ireland. Ireland, you are one percent of our listening audience. Thank you so much. If you're from Ireland, um, how did you find us? Um, how is the Mandalorian being received there in Ireland? Um, what can you share with us uh, about um, the Star Wars universe and how it's playing out there? Um, thank you for listening. John, programming notes. Yeah, so we've got three regular shows going on right now. The Last of Us, which we're just wrapping up. Get your feedback in for our season wrap-up at TLU, T-L-O-U, at thelorehounds.com. The Mandalorian, you just heard. It's coming out every week. Ted Lasso Season 3 is going. We just put out our first episode the day we're recording. And it's been a lot of fun. I think we're going to have some light conversations about it. If you're interested in more Star Wars, next month we're going to have a Bad Batch episode coming out where we're also going to talk about Visions, the non-canon anthology series. Bad then Batch we just had oh, really gone places this season, and it's going to be hard to catch up. Like we've, I got to go take some notes or something because there's that storyline covered a lot of different uh, plot elements. It, it was a Oh, lot. it brought me back in. Yeah, because I, yeah. I was starting to fall off it a little bit because it was becoming Adventure of the Week and I was getting uh -huh. kind of bored. And then the clone plot line that Oof. has been going has been really great. Wild. Yeah. Second Breakfast just dropped this week. That's our Patreon-exclusive podcast. We talked coffee. We talked Mad Max. We talked Pirate Tom. If you don't know what that means, check <laughs> it out. 
Lastly, I just want to talk about our reading initiatives. We have the Earth Sea Cycle, starting with Marilyn Arpukila. That's coming out next week, and so is Silmarillion Stories. Uh, so check those out on our main uh, Firehose feed if you're listening on the Star Wars feed, or just stay where you are if you're on the Firehose feed. Should I mention Bookaloo? No, when, when we get closer to it. Yeah, yeah. All right, David. I think that's it for our housekeeping, but I hope people come back and check out our Patreon if they want more of us and they want early and ad-free access or to support us with production. And uh, of course, I hope people check out our Discord server, which you can find in the show notes, so that they can interact with us in real time. It's very exciting, the technology these days. (laughs) Kids these days. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. And connect with us on Twitter at The Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies, Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>